Hello and welcome. I'm Wendy Lloyd and this is Open to Criticism, my podcast about how we talk about movies, who gets to do it and why it matters. Since I became a film critic about 30 years ago, the way criticism skews heavily towards white men and how that impacts the way cinema is valued and discussed has gnawed away at me. Now, Me Too, BLM and Time's Up has put that issue and many others front and centre. For my recent Masters in Cultural Inequalities, I researched how this lack of diversity and criticism affects our perceptions of on-screen representation, and I explored the wider ramifications. This podcast builds on my findings and considers what needs to change to keep criticism relevant in the 21st century. My guest this week is critic and producer Kaleem Aftab. For many years, it was unquestioned that Elizabeth Taylor could play Cleopatra. <laughs> We're not going to question that. We're going to have these great big films, Ben-Hur, the representations of Jesus throughout cinematic history. All of these things were unquestioned. What's great now is they are getting questioned. It is creating a debate. And that, for me, is what art's about. Kaleem is Director of International Programming at the Red Sea International Film Festival, author of an acclaimed biography on Spike Lee and a freelance film critic and writer. I was keen to talk to Kaleem about this year's Cannes Film Festival because it includes the largest number of Arab, Asian and African films in the event's history. The shift began off the back of the Palme d'Or winning Parasite back in 2019. But as Kaleem argues, there's no tokenism in this shift. It's about a clear increase in filmmaking of quality coming from these regions. I don't think it is tokenism, but I do think it's capitalism. <laughs> I think the world has changed so much over in the pandemic era and the way that people engage with cinema and with streamers has changed and all of a sudden with movements such as Me Too and Black Lives Matter all coming at the same time has led to this new way of thinking which is a great way of thinking if you ask me that the people who are telling the stories should be different to the people that have told the stories in the past that's a cultural change yeah but where I think the capitalism change comes in is China has become much bigger. India has become richer. African nations are now rejecting the kind of old way of them being inside a kind of capitalistic colonialism. Yeah. And they're demanding more rights over their nation states. And also we're seeing um, new funds across the Middle East, um, new... Film festivals across the Middle East, we're also seeing attempts at creating new festivals in Africa and China. And these are countries that are seeing the power and influence and how a cinema can be used to spread their culture as a soft power tool and also to build bridges across the world. Mm. And within this framework, within the framework we're seeing within Europe and North America, the kind of end of this almost like cannibalistic dichotomy of cinema where all the money was being made in the box office in Europe, was being made in the box office in America has changed. The box office has changed. Throw into that mix the streamers mm. who are looking at all places in the world to create content because they've realised that 
uh, people quite like to see stories they connect with made by similar people around the world. And you've got a whole new way of thinking and can be in the business that it is and being savvy has jumped on that bandwagon and not wanting to be left behind and to remain the number one film festival has embraced all those new territories. So that well, that's great because there's a really good overview of all these different things in play there. So let's just kind of talk about a couple of them in a little bit more detail. You mentioned there about um, more festivals happening around African countries and cultures and um, presumably across the Middle East and otherwise. That presumably has been in a response to more films being made in those territories. So how has that all kind of got off the ground? Do you understand you know, how it's come to be that there has been the money and the encouragement in those regions to make more movies and to make them at a higher standard? I think uh, one of the facts that we need to mention is also the technological changes that have happened over the last 25 years. Digital has made making films cheaper, has opened up access to the film market, has then meant that countries that maybe would not have been able to fund feature films because of they were so expensive in a great number and now able to set up film bodies to do so it means that young filmmakers on their home on their computer don't need to go cap in hand to institutions or private investors to make films so the availability of making films is larger than it's ever been before There's also a whole generation that has grown up on making films, whether it's uh, 30-second Instagram clips or whatever, but they're so used to being cutting, editing, and um, sending information in an audiovisual way. The technological side has fed into the other great changes that have been made, which is the acknowledgement that the way the films were being made traditionally It's obviously not colonialism in the old-fashioned sense, but there has definitely been the globalised world was definitely feeding Europe and America more than the other way around. Um, And a rejection of that has then meant that countries have been more interested in developing their own stories, in telling their own stories, in building their own industries. And also countries such as China, the Middle East, um, India even Bangladesh, they're richer than they've ever been. And there's a new class that wants to tell and be filmmakers. And that's all fed into this amazing change. Yeah. So, yeah, as you said, the technology is a really key thing, isn't it, in in terms of um, smashing the gatekeeping from previously. I I understand also there's many female filmmakers from these regions' um, selections in in Cannes this year, which goes against the idea, doesn't it, that Western cultures are better at providing opportunities for women, that women are freer to do things like make films and tell stories than women perhaps in the East. And I think this is a really important a kind of challenging of these really outdated stereotypes across the world. Uh, As you mentioned at the end there, it's very much an outdated stereotype. It's a stereotype that has been fed to kind of do a cultural domination. Yeah. But we can't take away from the fact that when cinema developed in the UK, Europe and America, it was in a very different time for these places where women did not necessarily have the same rights to work, were kept in private sphere. And Hollywood, uh, French cinema developed when it was very much 
men went out to work and directed. Absolutely. We can all go back and name like the few examples of women that broke through the barriers as we can name the few example of um, black filmmakers that broke through the barriers. But I think generally the trend was it was a very much a man's world. The countries we're talking about in the last couple of decades that have developed their film industries have developed in a very different time where women's rights are as strong as they've ever been. And one of the untold stories is that women's rights have changed around the world, not just in the West. Yeah. And so what we're seeing is when the cinema developed in these countries, women had equal access to telling their stories. They came to tell their stories. They're better sometimes, just as good as men. There's no disparity about the ability to be a director. Um, and when there was an equal marketplace, of course, in the end, that ended up with more equal representation on a gender balance. So it shouldn't be a surprise. Uh, then we have the old fashioned kind of racism and, you know, institutionalized beliefs about other nations across the world which are mostly untrue. And what we're seeing is just a representation of that. And we're seeing the domino effect because the world is also changed in Europe and America. And we're seeing more female filmmakers everywhere in the last 20 years. Well, absolutely. But I think, yes, I was definitely trying to make the point about how um, globally, because the messages have been maintained via representation and via, as you said at the beginning, you know, these stories being told not by the characters themselves, as it were, that this, you know, idea that women are not free to tell their stories um, has perpetuated perhaps longer than it would have done. And, you know, this instance of female filmmakers coming forward and being included in Cannes really does help change that, doesn't that, in a big way? I mean, it's incredible, just to reiterate your point, in that it is remarkable because without this long tradition of 100 years in some of these countries, obviously uh, it's not true of India, it's not true of Egypt and, um, you know, Nigeria and China have had, and Japan have had a long tradition of filmmakers. But where we're seeing other places like Senegal, Tunisia, the new filmmakers that are coming up, we're seeing two female filmmakers from Senegal and Tunisia in competition at Cannes. Wow. And there's two out of uh, six filmmakers, the highest number there's ever been in competition at Cannes this year. And that is because of access and quality. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you mentioned capitalism and, and cultural changes. And you've included in that, obviously, the conversations prompted by Me Too and BLM. You know, these things have really changed the, the way we question stories and storytelling, haven't they? I think they've really changed the way that people looked at culture, just as an audience, mm. as uh, gatekeepers and as um, creators. So what we're seeing is a different conversation. We're asking different questions about the films. We're wanting different voices to give different versions of the world than we might have seen before. And these are the things that have developed and have changed because of these movements. Whereas individually, if we looked at what the BLM done, did it make great changes in society as much as we'd like? Probably not. But together with all of these movements, it's definitely changed the way that stories are being told. 
But as we have seen throughout the whole of history as well, this doesn't mean that the change is always going to be in a forward line. It can go backwards as well as forwards. Yes, exactly. There's always going to be some pushback to contend with. Um, We were also talking there about, you know, um, the kind of authentic stories, real stories, different stories from those regions. But I wonder how might the issue of censors in some of those countries limit what stories can be told? What do you think about that? Uh, I think censorship is a very interesting question. It's you know, we mentioned uh, countries around the world, but censorship has existed everywhere. Yeah. We still have censorship in the UK. I mean, uh, just the other day, to give an example, uh Arab filmmaker came up to me and said, oh, I've shot a scene that involves a sheep that's being killed in an Islamic way. Do you think that will play well in the West? And I was like, I don't think so. <laughs> And that's where there's like yeah. the difference of like for him, that's censorship against his culture. Uh, it just depends on what perspective you're looking at. And obviously, um, we've had a long tradition in Britain and America with the Hayes Code in America, with films getting banned like Clockwork Orange didn't play for 30 years in Britain. Um, and we're always having uh, debates about sensitivities. Um, what I'm trying to say by all this is that what the west might see as censorship the east might see as censorship the other way so it's a question of it's a question of morals the moral pendulum is different around the world every country is not the same and so every country has set up their own boards to police in one way if you're being aggressive about it or to kind of um uphold the values of the society that they're in And if you don't agree with those values, you're going to say it's censorship. And if you do, you're going to say it's sensible. Yeah, I think that's a really, really important point. You know, just asking the question and hearing your response immediately made me realise how I'd come at that question from my position as a white Western person. All these things become a much more open area for debate, as you said, the more films that we all get to see from these regions, these authentic stories. Um, Authentic was a word that you used in, you know, one of your articles about, you know, this is key, this is key for moving forward with filmmaking that pertains to these regions. Do you think then that we are then moving away from the ability for Western cinema to do tokenistic casting, tokenistic storytelling. This rise in films in this region surely means things have just got to get an awful lot better, doesn't it? Uh, And again, as I said before, it's never a forward line. Things go backwards and (laughs) forwards. So I don't look at it as things can get better. What I do believe is people need to be open to hearing stories that I don't like. And maybe we all thought that would happen with the internet. But as we've seen, it's kind of been the rejection of that. It's kind of polarized people. Mm. The more that they've heard these stories, (laughs) the more they're like, I don't like that. I want to find my tribe because I feel like I'm in a safe space. Uh, What I feel that cinema does very well and maybe better than uh, some of the other arts is to challenge audiences and ask them to think and try and take them out of that safe space. And in that effort, it doesn't always bode well in terms of box office or reactions. But what it does do is it creates this idea of authenticity. And that can mean I'm having to sit here and watch films that I absolutely 
hate the idea of or the politics behind. Just like we saw in the 1930s with a lot of great German films being made mm. under Nazism um, in terms of structure, in terms of technique. doesn't mean that we have to like the films and what they're saying, but we need to be open to understand what other people or what our neighbours or what our brothers and sisters are thinking as no two people think exactly the same. We need to just look and understand and try and have empathy. Mm. But in terms of, you know, you mentioned earlier about how this kind of explosion of films is partly due to capitalism. I had an interesting conversation for the show with Hannah Flint. Uh, She's on last week's programme. She was talking about how we've still got this issue where multicultural casting is about whether or not somebody looks like they could be of the identity in question and that cinema, Western cinema, still is not dealing very well with ethnic ambiguity. So I suppose um, I'm also asking, you know, do you think with more of these films coming into circulation from these regions, not least actors and stars coming from them on a global level, will we see Hollywood doing a better job at casting these roles? Uh, I think uh, it's interesting. Hollywood's in a state of flux. I think it's been changing. It has tried to make some efforts. It's never going to satisfy everybody because ultimately it's the stars that lead the system. And if something looks approximately right, that will be the overriding factor because the box office will matter more than getting things ethnically or gender-wise correct. And it's also performance and acting. So I'm not strictly of the mind that someone needs to be from somewhere exactly to be right. I understand this creates a lot of problems and issues. But if we look at the recent um, debate around Cleopatra, yeah, it's a grey area. No one actually, you know, there's questions about what Cleopatra actually looked like. And there's questions about her heritage and identity that was brought up by it. And we don't know the actual answer. It could be one way or the other. But don't you think that people who are meaner might understandably feel quite strongly about the casting of Cleopatra, bearing in mind that we've had white people cast as Cleopatra in the past? It's, it, it is something that's understandable, isn't it? Of course it's understandable and everything's <laughs> in the eye of the beholder. And I think that's where it's interesting because we are now seeing these good debates being played out and we're seeing this interesting discussion but there is very grey because for many years it was unquestioned that Elizabeth Taylor could play Cleopatra yeah (laughs) you know what I mean (laughs) it was like oh okay we're not going to question that we're going to have these great big films uh Ben-Hur etc you know the representations of Jesus throughout cinematic history and even in galleries and paintings and pictures. All of these things were unquestioned. What's great now is they are getting questioned. It is creating a debate. It's creating a discussion. And that, for me, is what art's about. Art is about setting the board up so that we can look and put a mirror up to society and ask what is right and wrong and we can work out what is acceptable in the public place and understand that that changes very quickly and generation to generation. Absolutely. It's always fluid. Well, let's talk about you becoming a critic and um, growing up as a film fan, which I presume you did. Um, yeah. How, how, how did that pan out for you? 
And that's funny because, uh, you know what, I don't think I really watched a film until I was 12 or 13 years old. I was just into football. Right. And then uh, one day my dad brought home a VCR player. We still had a black and white TV in those days. So most yeah. of the films I watched were... <laughs> they were black and white, whether or not they were black and white. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, and then I just really got into cinema, really got into film. It soon became my first love. I then um, was fortunate enough to be in Cuba on a holiday after I did my A-levels and I was at a party at a guy called Ron Reidenauer's house who was a very great author on Cuban history. And there I met the deputy editor of the Morning Star, uh, as he would be in Cuba. (laughs) Indeed. Being like the last bastion of communism. And uh, I then started working there for six months. And even there, when I was started off, I imagined that I would end up going into sports journalism. I tried that out and realized that it didn't allow me to express my interest in society as much as I would want to and started to veer more towards writing about cinema on the television pages and then doing some articles. And then I went to university, and when I came out, I had friends who were making films, so I helped them make films, and then I was writing on the side. And fortunately for me, um, very quickly, my writing got noticed, and I realised now, the older I've got, my career accelerated very fast in the 20s, in my 20s. Not the 1920s. I'm not that old yet. <laughs> so, so bearing in mind that you know you were there writing for the Morning Star initially, were, was your criticism coming from a political position from the outset? I wouldn't necessarily say that it was coming from a political position in terms of left and right. Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily say it was coming from a political position as regards my race. But I would say just by the very fact that I was talking from my personal experience, which at that time was one of the few Asians writing about cinema at the time, Mm. um, meant that all of my work was very political, whether I liked it or not. Yeah. And I was uh, very much, very quickly making a mark because at the time everyone said I was very contrarian. I would like films that other people didn't like. I would go against the grain. And at first, I didn't really understand that. I just thought, that's just your point of view. And you don't realize that I just like these films. I'm not trying to be contrary. (laughs) And then as I got older, I realized it was because my whole life experience was so different to theirs Mm. that I could see things in films and I was looking at characters in films that they were not seeing. And so therefore, my view was very different. And then I got very fortunate in terms of I very quickly started writing for The Independent and had a great editor who was a great support of mine for over 10, maybe 15 years. And with that platform where I felt very secure that I could write in my own voice and that when I did get battles, um, I had someone on my side, I was able to express myself and that enabled me to have an authentic voice. And then, of course, I wrote Spiley's biography within that through Faber and Faber. And I found a companion, someone who was just 
telling their own stories and just by the fact he was in a unique position telling his own stories, his stories were different and they rubbed people up the wrong way, some of them. Yeah, so it consolidated kind of where you'd been coming from anyway. It's very interesting what you say about being at The Independent. Were you officially a staff writer? I was not. I was in that first wave of... uh, freelancers but you know in those days newspapers paid a lot better than they do now Um, (laughs) and so you could live off writing three or four articles a month. Because I figured you wouldn't have been a staff writer because it's kind of remained white men in those top positions. What I was also interested about was because having spoken to some of those um, critics in those positions, they have confirmed to me that it's a really privileged position to be in, not least because of having, as you said there, that security and that support to be able to shape your voice, find your voice and to be protected to say things in the way that you really want to say. And it sounds like you really felt that. I definitely felt that and uh, I was lucky enough, I was offered a staff position once but at that stage I wasn't, I was doing successful enough as a freelancer that I didn't want to, and I'm not the sort of personality that sits well in an office, I don't think. (laughs) Um, I quite like to be out and about uh, at festivals, on the ground. The editor, David Lister, uh, was a great supporter of mine, Um, really made me feel comfortable, gave me plenty of work so I didn't feel like I was on a hamster wheel or having to look around and also gave me a platform to go and go to film festivals to meet people in the industry, feeling safe and secure even though I might not have had a contract position that I felt uh, really good. And that's the most important thing. I think one of the things that happened when the digital age happened and newspapers all of a sudden got frightened. They just used the writers that they knew for about a decade. And I was lucky to be one of those writers, but we lost a whole generation of film critics. There's like a gap of about 15 years between sort of my age and the next wave of critics that came up, which was very unusual. And that was partly because there was no security Everyone was laying people off and there was no way of breaking in when everybody that had a position was holding onto it for their life. Yeah, absolutely. So presumably, yes. So that was long before the recent social movements, which have obviously thrown up calls for greater diversity all round. Yeah, that was there was no calls for diversity when I broke through. (laughs) Um, It was A very unusual and unique position. I realised that at the time. You know, as I said, I just tried to write in my own voice. I didn't play up to it or play down to it. It it was just what it was. Um, I'd like to think that's because it was um, the quality of my Ryan shone through. So I was able to just rise up to the top. So that was lucky. But I could see the barriers. I could see people who were great writers who did not have the personality I did, did not have the willpower, did not have the security to stay in the game long enough to make a mark. Yeah. And obviously I could see in other places where that safe haven or that safe space didn't exist, it was impossible for writers of colour to break through in that environment. Yeah. Obviously now the situation is better. It's not perfect, but it's definitely better than it's ever been. 
Uh, I also tie that into capitalism, and I feel that's partly because film criticism has stopped being a job that you can live off. Mm. And so, therefore, when the pay is worse, they're happier to spread the pay to other writers. There's still not enough editors of colour at any of the newspapers or magazines. Yeah. Um, there's still not enough writers of colours on staff. So it's kind of hidden by using freelancers to give some people a pat on the back, but they're not actually helping anyone have job security. And I can see people who are pretty well known who really struggle. Yeah, well, that's it, isn't it? As uh, Hannah Flint was talking about how they reach out to freelancers to do their diversity bit and it can be very piecemeal work. Let's go back to, though, what you said about, you know, how you were writing and you realised that you were writing as a critic from a different perspective, obviously, because you come from a different background from the vast majority of, of critics. I just wonder how and when in your writing perhaps you were kind of considering um, things like the representations of Arabs and Arab culture on screen in Western filmmaking? I mean, when, at what point was that something you were consciously aware of and therefore potentially calling out? So I think, you know, we can talk about it in phases. There was the phase where I was trying to make it as a writer and I talked about a little bit about being from a Pakistani or a Muslim background in the UK. Mm. Then there was a point where I wrote a biography with Spike Lee that was all about um, race in many ways and how living as a person of colour in a Western society affects your view of the world. And subsequently to that, um, one of the places as a freelancer that offered me uh, a considerable, you know, amount of work that meant I also felt security as a freelancer. Was it through Abu Dhabi and the National, which meant that I started to then look at Arab stories a lot more and took a greater interest in those. And then I would take what I learned from looking at that and bring that into my writing for the Western media, whether it would be the Independent or Interview magazine or wherever else I was writing at the time. And then it just built and built. And then I did get involved quite a bit in the movement to kind of diversify who was writing in the media. And it was at that stage, I would say, for a couple of years, I was very strong in voicing my opinions, both in print and sort of in closed rooms, mm. about the changes that I felt were needed. And I could use the position that I had attained as a kind of top writer in the world um, to really push through and to highlight um, in many ways when people were looking at what they felt was a fair position, but I could maybe show a position taken from being um, from a white privileged background. Yeah, it's it's very interesting because it's obviously been a very organic thing for you in terms of this journey, I suppose, with the shifting um, situation in terms of inclusivity or lack thereof. I wonder where you're at now in terms of, you know, anything that you feel as a critic quite passionate about pushing or making people aware of. What What would you say to that? I mean, it's an interesting place now because obviously uh, over the last couple of years, I've taken this job as director of international program at the Red Sea Film Festival in Saudi Arabia, which raises lots of questions just in and of itself, politically and otherwise. 
Um, and so that's kind of, in a way, been my main focus and has taken me a bit outside of, even though I do do writing, as you uh, mentioned at the top, of a uh, kind of critical nature looking at the world of politics. I wouldn't say as a critic I'm concerned with now. I would more say as a lover of cinema. Right. I'm concerned with all sides of cinema more than just looking at the media representation. I'm also now looking at film, how the gatekeepers are, where the stories are getting told from, uh, who is funding these stories, and how that pertains to criticism, which the media have such a huge role. It's funny, since I've stopped being on the media side, I've realised how big the media role is, mm. even more than I thought it was uh, throughout my career. Do you mean in that, in terms of you know critics and you know what is said about film? I would say what critics write about film is incredibly important, and what I've really realised in the last few years is, uh, unfortunately, critics have let themselves be exploited, and there's a lot of amazing people, amazing workers, amazing writers who are not getting paid what they should be for their work. Yeah. And it makes me incredibly sad to see that because I know the effort and the standard and the level of ability that many of these people have. And because of their love of cinema, because of their love of writers, because of their passion and because everybody knows that they would do it anyway mm -hmm. because of all this great love, they then get exploited yeah. and not treated and valued as high as they should be. And what I've tried to say to people is I now understand your value in the chain is probably higher than you think it is. And that means that that would benefit, as I said, the kind of pool of writers has changed and has diversified. If those people who were coming up, who were from minorities, who were from different genders understood their own kind of value and sense of self-worth instead of continually fighting this nonsensical argument that they're like lucky to be there in some way because they're being given an opportunity that others didn't have. They're not lucky to be there. They're rightfully there. They've probably gone through many hardships to be there and they deserve to be rewarded. And the rest of the industry is not changing as quick uh, as many people would like it to. So I think my focus now has moved a little bit away from media and more towards criticising some of the institutions that backfill. Well, I'm with you on that because I think it is really important because for individuals, it's a very difficult thing to do. You can only start taking a stand when you've got some security and some success, really. And, you know, as you said, it is something that's right, always been ripe for exploitation because people love watching movies. So they say, oh, I'll just, you know, I'll just, just get to go to see the preview screening and I'll write it. But it is absolutely something that um, we need to value. And we also need to acknowledge the importance of what is written and, and how important it is to the industry and to filmgoers in general, don't we? Uh, we really do. And I think the industry realises that. And I think the industry feels sad about how the media is not valuing its writers because it doesn't benefit them. I think there is a correlation between reduced rates the journalists, film journalists in particular, have got in the last 25 years since I started writing and the impact that cinema is having. Because if people don't have 
the space to formulate and to really write about their passions and arguments and are given the space to voice that in media, of course, the audience is also going to be less interested. Kaleem Aftab setting out how the demise in well-paid criticism has the potential to negatively impact cinema going right across the board. Many thanks again to Kaleem. And if you're in the Teddington region of southwest London, why not pop into Woof Cafe? Because not only does Kaleem juggle several film industry roles, he also owns a coffee shop. That's about it for this time. Next week, I'm chatting queer critique and on-screen representation and how it continues to be an important disruptor of the heteronormative gaze with critic Guy Lodge. This idea people have, you know, that they don't bring their identity into their work and that I, the pure straight white man, can see outside such things because I am the norm, not realising that they bring their identity into everything they write because we all do, because that privilege is, is what they've always lived with and has completely shaped their worldview and their critical point of view and their taste. Many thanks for listening. And if you're enjoying the podcast, then do please tell others, be it online or in person, and give us a short review on Apple and other platforms. Recommendations are the lifeblood of independent podcasts like this one. Open to Criticism is written, produced and presented by me, Wendy Lloyd, with original music by Hamish Clark. See you next time. <laughs>